Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Why don't we begin in prayer, and uh, I'll turn it over to Andy for our introduction. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy church, and still in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory together with your eternal Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, Father. Dr. Peter Brown received his bachelor's from Yale University and master's in theology from Franciscan University. In addition to being a middle school teacher and an adjunct instructor at Catholic Distance University, Dr. Brown worked with Dr. Scott Hahn, gaining experience in scripture and theology. Having been awarded the Quadston Scholarship, Dr. Brown has received his doctorate in biblical studies at Catholic University of America, which includes advanced studies in Greek and all biblical languages. And currently, he teaches several courses for Catholic Distance University. Please welcome Dr. Brown. Welcome, Doctor. Thanks for having me. What I did was is I, I circulated some questions, and these are just kind of questions I'm going to sort of uh, throw out to the group and we'll kind of work our way through these questions. And I think we'll have time to get through hopefully all of them in, in the, uh, the time that we have. Fortunately, the New Testament doesn't tell us a whole lot about Joseph, but I think we'll, we'll be surprised to see how much we can, you know, learn just by, uh, you know, really, really working with what it does say. So I was wondering, maybe to throw out this question first, what's the best line in the New Testament spoken by St. Joseph? What would you say? I mean, of all the things that he says, what's the most memorable in your mind? I mean, Mary, you've got the fiat, you know, let it be done to me according to thy word. You know, Jesus has many sayings. Paul, you know, we've got all these. <laughs> That's right. He doesn't say anything. <laughs> it's kind of funny, right? They don't give the man any speaking parts. We're probably going to work mostly in the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's fair to say Matthew chapter 1, especially in chapter 2 a little bit. Most of what we know about St. Joseph is in the Gospel of Matthew. And there's a little bit in Luke also in the first couple chapters in the infancy story of Luke. We'll probably work our way to that at the end. But beyond that, there's not a whole lot. But I'll tell you what, for Matthew's story of Jesus in his first two chapters, I think almost every interpreter agrees that St. Joseph is really the star of the show, besides, of course, Jesus himself. The story really, uh, you know, is kind of held together by the things that Joseph does and the things that happen to him along the way. And so we're going to kind of look at that in our, in our little talk today. So what I thought we might do before we dive into, you know, some of the more familiar text is kind of talk a little bit about the Old Testament background to all of this. Now, in, in a certain sense, you could say, well, the, the birth of Jesus is sort of sweet generous, right? It's, it kind of just happened and we have an account of it. But by the same token, um, it's pretty clear to us that when we read these infancy stories carefully, that both Matthew and Luke are clearly writing with the, the Old Testament tradition in mind, that they're deliberately echoing in some ways some of the things that they tell us about the key characters of the story. And I'm wondering if, if when you read about Joseph, that he reminds you of any person or persons in the Old Testament, and if so, who would they be and why? I'm seeing a couple of things there at, at, at the bottom. Okay, someone put Abraham. That's good. Why do you say Abraham? What's, what's the similarity between Joseph and Abraham, would you, would you say? There are a couple of key 
things there I, I would say about that. What do you all think about that? At Abraham's faith. The, the faith, okay, yeah. Yeah, good. What else? Um, the, the necessity for trusting in God not knowing where you were going. Okay, good. Yeah, there, there's a lot of faith. There's a lot of trust, okay? So th- those are two things. I, I'm thinking about something specifically that happens in Abraham's career that's similar to something that happens in Joseph's career. Does anyone think of what that might be? Oh. What would you say? Peggy? Your plans get thwarted. Okay, plans get thwarted, but, but something specific. He ran into hardship, though, at one point. Do you guys remember that part of it? So, so all, all was not peachy keen in, in the land of Canaan. There was a famine there, and he had to do something to rescue himself and his clan. They both went to Egypt. Yeah, so that's right. So, so this whole going to Egypt thing it, during times of trouble is what we would call an Old Testament. It's almost like a trope. It's, it's, it's a kind of a repeated habitual thing that characters in the Old Testament do. Whenever they get into trouble, they typically go to Egypt. Why Egypt? Why would you go to Egypt if you were in trouble? What's in Egypt? Some of the people writing in here are saying uh, the Nile River. It's Yeah, that's right, the Nile River. So the Nile River, it's dependent on rainfall, but it's not dependent on rainfall in quite the same way that the, the crops in Canaan are. And so since the crops in Egypt are dependent on kind of the floods and the ebbs of the Nile River, Egypt doesn't have famines to quite the same degree. The weather patterns are not quite as variable as they are in Canaan. And and so typically that would be a place to go if you were in trouble in the land of Canaan, which, you know, is now Israel, Palestine, that area. So we know that Abraham went down there at least once during his times. Who else went to uh, Egypt? He's not, he's certainly not the only one. Yeah, Joseph, exactly. And you know what's interesting about Joseph? The dude's got the same name as our figure in the New Testament. And I don't think that's a coincidence, do you? I mean, there's a certain kind of a symmetry between the two characters. So we could could talk about their names are the same. Okay, they both went to Egypt. What else is similar about them, Uh, Macrina? I think they were led uh, to Egypt by God because they could... Uh, understand their dreams. Correct, exactly. Okay, that that's key. You mentioned something else. So they're led to Egypt by God, okay, and they both dream, but they don't dream specifically about food and a, a better life, but what? The dreams tend to be what? They tend to be, what would you say about the dreams that they have? Prophetic. They're prophetic dreams, that's right. So prophetic means what? Perhaps, maybe telling the future, but really prophecies much more than telling the future. Uh, telling the future is maybe kind of a small aspect of prophecy. How would you describe, like, biblical prophecy if you had to, like, in maybe one sentence or so? What, what does prophecy really do for you? Big authority. It gives you authority to know what? To know the will of, what would you say? Know the will of God. To, to, to know God's will, to know something about his plan, to know something about what his will is in the present. And of course, it helps in certain contexts to know what's going to happen in the near future. And so oftentimes, or at least sometimes, it's, it's involved with things in the, the near-term future as well. So in the case of Joseph, there were a couple of dreams, right? A couple of famous dreams that he had. The first one he had was dealing with his brothers and his father, Jacob. And if you remember, did anyone see the Technicolor Dreamcoat, Joseph, the, the movie? These are, these, are good, these are good stories that, that we probably should be, be familiar with. So Joseph has a dream, basically, you know, to, to the effect that, that he's eventually going to be, although he's, he's the youngest of the brothers, he's eventually going to be on a higher level than his other 12 brothers. And, and so or 11 brothers, I guess. And so that's, that's one of the dreams. And then the second dream happens when he's, he's in prison in Egypt. There's, a, there's actually three dreams he has. So the second dream he has is, is concerning uh, the, the characters, what's going to happen to, to his other cellmates. That's, that's one of them. But then one of them gets the idea, okay, this guy's really good. He knows a lot about dreams. And so, you know, when Pharaoh is having these really difficult 
problems and, and dreams that he's having, he sends Joseph to interpret them. And that's very key as well. And that, that ultimately gets Joseph out of prison. So they're both dreamers as well. And I think someone typed this as well. Who were their fathers? This is also very interesting. Jacob, that's right. If you look closely at Matthew's gospel, and I'll just open mine here to Matthew chapter 1, and just looking at the genealogy here, it's really interesting. Look at Matthew 1.16. Jacob is listed as a father of Joseph. So not only do they have the same names, they also have the same father. And many interpreters, me included, think that the reason this is here. Matthew's in some way probably signaling to us that he wants us to be thinking about the Joseph of the Old Testament. There's already a lot of parallels between them. They both have the same paternal name. They both have the same name. They're both dreamers. They both go to Egypt ultimately to save their lives from distress. Okay, in the case of Joseph, Mary's husband, and Jesus' adopted father, it's to do what? It's to escape from King Herod. But in the case of the older Joseph, it's to do what? It's to get out of the well and, you know, ultimately to escape his brothers who, well, might be trying to kill him or might want to kill him, but can't quite make up their mind about it. But at any rate, want to get rid of him. So he's got to go somewhere for protection. So, so there's, there's a sense there of similarity between the two of them. The other thing that's interesting about Joseph, too, the first Joseph, do you guys remember what happened with Joseph when he's in Pharaoh's court? There's an interesting story with him and the wife of Potiphar. Yes. Do you remember, uh, Macrina, what, what happens with him? I can say the Puritan chastity. They, he ran away from... Yeah. Uh, that's right. So, so, so he's chased in that he resists the opportunity to sleep with Potiphar's wife. And then the interesting thing about this is, is that he ends up getting into trouble for this because he ends up grabbing on to, 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 to her robe. And so the whole thing looks terrible, right? You've got this, this sort of appearance problem, but does he tell Potiphar that his wife was acting badly the whole time? No. No, he doesn't. So in some ways he's, kind enough to not reveal things that he thinks are bad about Potiphar's wife. And that's also similar to Joseph, too, in what way? The way he protected Mary. Yeah, exactly. That's certainly at least one interpretation of the story that we could take, that Joseph, although he was not sure what to do about the fact that his bride-to-be is pregnant before the marriage has been consummated officially, that nevertheless whatever he's going to do, he wants to do quietly. He doesn't want to expose Mary to shame. And so, so there's a lot of parallels here between Joseph of old and the new Joseph. And so I think this is really very significant. One, because it helps us see salvation history kind of has a rhyming scheme, right? History doesn't repeat itself, but it does have a certain rhyme, I guess you might say. You sometimes will, will hear a certain tune before and you'll hear a similar tune playing in, in maybe a different context. And so that, that might be what's going on here, I think. Okay, anything else? So we've talked a little about Joseph. We talked a little about Abraham. Anyone else who St. Joseph reminds you of in the Old Testament? This is a little tougher. Who else is involved heavily in Egypt in the Old Testament? And I'm thinking not in the book of Genesis, but maybe the next book over Moses. Moses, that's right, that's right. Now, that's a little less obvious, but what could be some of the similarities between Moses and Joseph? Hmm. Makes you think a little bit. Well, I'll give you a hint. What were some of the problems that Moses had in his early life before he became the leader of, of Israel? There's, there's two episodes in which he narrowly escaped death. Okay, so what, what happened? When he, when he killed the Jews, because he... Well, before that, that, we'll get to that in a second, but before that, so, so first of all, he has to, in this case, it's an inversion of the story, right? He has to escape from Pharaoh at a time where there's also this kind of curse going on, Okay, or not, not curse, but 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 a king is trying to kill all the all the infants, right? And and that reminds a lot of people like what King Herod's trying to do in the New Testament, right? So 
there's kind of a parallel there, but that would be maybe a parallel between Jesus and Moses, but how would Joseph fit into that? That's kind of interesting, and I, I don't expect you to, to totally know this part of it, but, um, but in uh, the Jewish tradition, just like the, the New Testament Bible doesn't necessarily answer all the questions we might have about a story, um, the same is true with the Old Testament, too. It's like you wonder, well, how, how do these stories actually fit together? One of the things that happens is over time is that people begin to fill in the gaps of the story. And one of the great uh, gap or filler inners of, of this was a man named Josephus. And Josephus uh, wrote a book called Antiquities of the Jews. And Antiquities of the Jews is basically the Old Testament story, except Josephus will often fill in a whole lot of details that are missing from the Old, uh, the Old Testament proper that we have in the Bible. And we probably don't want to take these necessarily as literally historical, but nevertheless, they do tell us a great deal about the ways in which Jews could interpret the story and could make sense of the story. And there is a tradition in Josephus about the father of Moses, namely Ammon, who is warned in a dream because he's really upset about the pregnancy of his wife. This, this would be Moses' mother. And he's warned in a dream, don't worry about it. This baby will ultimately save your people. He'll, he'll deliver Israel. There's a kind of a prophetic dream in there as well. And don't worry about it. You know, it, it's going to be okay. Okay, in other words, it, it's, it's going to be fine. And so there's some similarities between at least the extra-testamental or extra-biblical tradition about uh, Moses' father, that's Ammon, and, and Joseph. And so, so there's a similarity there. And I'm wondering here, this is kind of interesting too. If I'm just going to read you a little segment of Matthew. This is Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. And what Matthew 2, 13 says, And now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Okay, and this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, and then Herod realizes he's been tricked and he goes on his murderous rampage, ordering the death of all the children in and around Bethlehem under the age of two. But then it's interesting what happens in verse 19. It says here, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. So this is now the third dream that Joseph has. By the way, everything in Matthew's gospel happens either in pairs or in threes. And this is, this is an example of the third dream that Moses has, uh, or sorry, that Joseph has. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Okay, now, here's the thing. This is where a really profound textual knowledge of the Bible in both Testaments will really help you out. If you are really attuned to the Old Testament, and the New Testament, and kind of going back and forth. And I wouldn't expect you to notice this so much reading the New Testament, going back to the Old. But if you're reading the book of Exodus, and if you have the book of Exodus, go ahead and go back to chapter 4 of Exodus and see what it says in verse 19. And here's what it says. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons and so on and so forth and went back to Egypt. Now, that has a kind of a ring there, right? It's, it's almost exactly the same language. And if you read this in the original language, it's, it's almost exactly the same words. The, the seeking the life, go back, the trope of going back immediately when the evil monarch has died. This is another similarity here between an important similarity between in this case, it's going to be Moses here and Joseph, because Joseph is going to do exactly what Moses does. Moses goes back to Egypt. And by the way, why had Moses left Egypt at that point? Does anyone remember the story? This is now the adult Moses. I kind of skipped over that part. Do you remember, uh, Jane? Do you know? 
Yeah, he kind of had to run away so that he wasn't killed. Yeah, <laughs> if, why were they going to kill him? Because he he got caught for, um, I don't remember which one, was it a soldier or somebody that he killed for harming an Israelite, and then he buried him hoping that was going to, you know, like, yeah. Exactly. He he was he was in he was in legal trouble. You might say, right? right. So he he was fleeing from judgment for a crime which which he committed, right? So he wasn't exactly innocent, but nevertheless, uh, it wasn't safe for him to return until it was safe, right? And so so there's the trope: wait till the king who's trying to kill you dies, then go back, okay? And the people who are seeking your life are dead. So there you go. There's clearly another parallel there, which I think is really fascinating. The parallel of fleeing a murderous monarch and, you know, doing this in, in response to a divine voice, you know, that, that's, that's very similar. So there's, there's already several different similarities between Joseph and Moses. By the way, if anyone was interested in reading Josephus, just as an aside, you can find all of his works, almost all of his major works, are online. This is from the Antiquities of the Jews. And so um, if you just look up Google Antiquities of the Jews and find that the chapter dealing with the Joseph story and also the early Moses uh, stories, you'll find these stories listed at length. There's another author who does something similar, and his name is Philo. And this is uh, a work that not everybody agrees is really by Philo, but Philo is another author who, who has this propensity to sort of creatively retell the stories of the Old Testament tradition. And his take is sort of a, different than, than Josephus's. Remember Moses' sister, Moses' older sister's name is what? Does anyone know what, what Moses' older sister is named? Miriam. Miriam, yeah. And what's, what's Miriam's name in, uh, in Greek? Mary, that's right. So in his version of the story, Pharaoh is once again trying to kill all the children of, of Egypt. But there's a special divine apparition that, that happens to Miriam. And it again warns him very similarly to what Josephus's version does. Don't worry, the child you have will be a deliverer and I will rescue him. So in other words, there's a lot of parallels between these stories that the Jews were telling and what actually ended up happening in Matthew's story of, of the nativity. And so, so I just wanted to kind of bring that out to to emphasize, so you 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 can you can learn a lot by reading the Old Testament and also taking the time to sort of study the uh, extra later literature that that Jews have that sort of amplify that their own tradition. Because although it's not necessarily the same weight as the Bible, it does let you know in in many cases what uh, Jews at the time of Jesus and at the time of the New Testament writers were thinking. And if, if we sort of understand that, we have a lot more light that's shed on the things that the New Testament writers have written, because oftentimes they're aware of these traditions, and, you know, although many of us aren't, okay, we, we will lose a little bit from that. Very good. So, let's see. Next question. Any, first of all, any questions about, about Old Testament figures? We could talk about that a little bit, but I'd like to get a little bit more deeply into the story if we could. Can I ask you a question? About Please. Joseph? Does Josephus address the age of, Mo, of uh, Joseph? Like the people say he's 90, he was 90 years old or he was 18, you know, when he married. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, okay, good. That, that's coming up. Okay. That's coming up. So my next question I wanted to, to take a look at, uh, was Joseph engaged to Mary? And the answer there is yes. But the question is, how could he divorce her if they weren't married yet? And, and that's one of the puzzles uh, of this. So, so does anyone have any uh, thoughts on that one? I see Jane's hand up. Uh, Jane, what do, you, what do you have? They were actually betrothed, and that doesn't mean the same thing as an engagement now. So it, they, they were legally contracted, but not coming together in marriage yet, not living together yet, mm -hmm. but they were legally contracted to one another. Right. Yeah, something like that. The word in the Greek is menuane, and uh, we're, we're not exactly sure what the custom was in this period of time. We're talking here sort of the early part of the, of the first century. We know, however, from later times, just, just in, the, in terms of the rabbinic tradition, that first of all, you, you generally speaking don't have what we would call today love marriages or what we just call today marriages where two people, you know, they meet, they fall in love, they decide, let's get married. It's, it's more like uh, two families kind of get together and say, this looks like it'd be a good match here. So let's, let's pair up this 
great young buck from this family and this wonderful, lovely lady from this family, and we'll, we'll make we'll make a, a, a better match, right? So we'll, the, the two families will co- will kind of come together in this. So so there, there's a sort of arrangement, and like Jane says, it's a little bit stronger than what we would call an engagement. Engagement is not really a promise that is legally binding either in terms of religion or in terms of like it's if they're not legally enforceable in terms of the law, right? If you promise someone to marry them and you back out of it, you, you can't sue someone for breach of contract. And you also can't go to uh, Father Hezekiah and say, hey, <laughs> they, they, they lied to me. They said they're going to marry me. And now they're, they, so it's, it's, it's not sort of legally binding in the same way. But this is sort of more along the lines of what, what Jane would say, a, um, a contract. And so there's sort of a year period or so. This, this was later. So we're assuming it's probably maybe roughly the same thing in, in Mary and Joseph's day. And what would happen after the year of this sort of uh, probationary period is that they would move together. Okay, almost always it would be the case that the woman would come to live with the man's family and, and never, almost never vice versa. And at that point, they would come together you know, figuratively, and probably they would also consummate the marriage at that point. So, so we're talking, you know, a year into this, right? And so that seems to be what we're dealing with here, that, that, that Mary and Joseph were betrothed, okay, they were sort of contracted with each other, but they hadn't actually consummated the marriage, and they also weren't living together. And so that seems to be what, what we're talking about here. Now, what's left unsaid here is why did these two particular people come together? What, anything about the family backgrounds and stuff, all that is kind of left unstated here. And so we're, we're going to talk a little bit about different possibilities about how the two might have come together in a moment. At any rate, there is a question here that the Bible text brings up, which I don't think we necessarily think about the different possibilities of what might be going through Joseph's head. So in terms of what is going on with this. So in other words, the two are engaged. We would say betrothed might be a stronger way of putting it. The word betrothed is sort of archaic, but nevertheless, it's probably a stronger term than engaged. And engaged would sort of maybe lead to the misunderstanding that it's like a modern engagement, which, which it isn't. Okay, but at any rate, uh, this is the very beginning of, of Matthew's infancy narrative. This is in verse 18, right after the genealogy. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, I'm reading from the RSV here, by the way, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to, my text says, put her to shame, but really the word is, is sort of more like expose publicly. It probably would involve shame, but it would, the sort of core sense of the verb would really be to put someone on trial in, in, a, in a kind of a public kind of a way. So he was unwilling to expose her publicly, we might say, and he resolved to send her away, to put her away quietly, and, and the, the term put away is basically what we would say, what we would term for divorce, okay? Now, here's the question. Why did Joseph want to divorce Mary? What are some different possibilities here, given the fact that we don't have a whole lot to go on in terms of the subjective motivations of the characters, and there's probably more than one inference we could make from from the text themselves. Does anyone have any possibilities? Don't be afraid if you think it's an obvious one, because certainly one of them will be obvious, but, but what, are, what are some possibilities here of why Joseph wants to, to do this quietly? Why he wants to put her away? And what do you think, Peggy? What's, what's a possibility here? I think I, I remember re- I'm reading that she could have been put to death. Okay. By divorcing her. Right. Quietly, she wouldn't be exposed that way. Okay, so, so that, that might be something about why he would want to do it quietly, right? He didn't want something bad to happen to her as a result, okay? So I think we can probably take that as a, a, you know, as a, as a given. He doesn't want to expose her. That part of it's pretty clear, but why does he want a divorce? 
What are some different possibilities here about why he would want out of this relationship? Anyone? Macrina. Because he found out she was pregnant. Okay. Yeah, so if the people knew she got pregnant, he would be killed by stone. Okay. So you're, you're telling me a different variation of its concern for her, but notice what the text says. It says he's a just man. So we could take just to mean several things, right? We can take just to mean just in more moral sense that he is magnanimous and he has concern for, for Mary's welfare. But what else could just mean? Maria? I guess kind of one of the obvious things, it appears she's an adulterer, adulteress. So if he's just, that's not okay. And he Yeah. So, so just could mean kind of this law-abiding, right? He wants to follow the law of Moses. So this entails getting out of this relationship because you shouldn't marry an adulterer and adulteress should be punished. And what's the other possibility about this? Who might be blamed for this, uh, this, this child if he allowed this to go? Yeah, exactly. He might be the one who is going to be blamed for this whole situation. And so if he doesn't expose her, he might be punished too. And so there might be a motivation, being a just man that he wants to preserve his justice, he might be concerned about his own reputation too a little bit. I don't think we can necessarily rule that interpretation out. That might be one of the reasons why he wants to divorce Mary at this point. So clearly he wants to protect her, but that might not be his only motivation. He might want to protect himself and he might also simply want to do what the law requires, right? That she's an adulteress. He knows the child's not his. Okay. He has to know that. So he doesn't want to be blamed for it. He knows there's no way he can really completely protect her from people from finding out because people are going to notice that she's showing, I'm thinking, right? But he doesn't necessarily have to make a public trial out of it. He may just be able to kind of gradually step away from the whole situation and divorce her quietly. Okay, so that's one possibility. Those are actually two possibilities there. He might be concerned about her. He might be concerned about himself. He might be doing what the law requires. So those are maybe 2.5 possibilities there, perhaps somewhat mutually overlapping there as well. What's another possibility? Yeah, exactly. He didn't feel worthy to be Mary's spouse. That's kind of interesting, right? I don't know. What do you think about that one? Let me read it this way. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verse 19 again. So, so they've come together. She's found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and perhaps I could say, and in spite of that, unwilling to put her to shame, or simply because of that, unwilling to put her to shame, uh, resolved to send her away quietly. But as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife. And my translation says, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. But I'm wondering if I could maybe read the quote of the angel a little differently to make that other interpretation work. Let me say it like this, and just maybe change the order of the sentence a little bit. So Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid because that which is conceived in her of the Holy Spirit. So don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife. Don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife, because what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be okay, right? I'm the angel of the Lord, and I represent God, and I can make this work for you and for her. So this is one possibility in the ancient tradition. It's, it's more the fear and the awe interpretation, right? That, that Joseph is backing out of the situation quietly and gracefully because somehow he already knows before the angel even appears to him that this baby is not his and, in fact, is of the Holy Spirit. And so in that interpretation, this, this angelic voice would not be so much revelatory as it is a reassurance, 
It's meant to kind of reassure him that it's going to be okay. You don't feel worthy to be the father or the adopted father of this woman conceiving a child of the Holy Spirit in such circumstances, but it's okay. Okay, that's a very different interpretation, isn't it? So what do you think? You think that's possible? And I'll tell you, there's no right or wrong answer necessarily, although I think we, we can assess a, a certain greater or lesser likelihood. And by the way, you will find support in the Catholic interpretive tradition for all different all, all the different interpretations I've given you. Clement of Alexandria basically took the, the first one. Augustine took the, well, he thought she was guilty of adultery, so he, he wanted to divorce her quietly. That's more the simple one. But uh, no less authority than I believe Aqu Thomas Aquinas took the, uh, the, the interpretation that it might be out of holy fear and awe, that, that he's just totally blown away by the prospect of this and that he needs reassurance. What do you think of that interpretation? He knows she was a very holy woman. You know, she was in the temple. Yeah. And, I, and I know that he, he just was, I don't even know where this, what part of the Bible I read this from, but he really was in awe of her in the sense that he knew how good she was and he couldn't probably understand how he, she could possibly have done this. Yeah. Well, that, well, that will go back to more the um, shock and adultery one than the shock and awe one. So I, I'm thinking one of the problems I have with this interpretation, there's, there's two problems I have with it. Uh, one, it, it's a little hard to see how you could get this from looking at the Greek, you know, the way the sentence is put together and stuff. It's, it just doesn't really seem to be the most likely interpretation of the Greek. But however, I can see how it would have happened because it all kind of comes down to, to the word for. Don't be afraid to take Mary into your home for that which is conceived of as the Holy Spirit. And Jerome and his Vulgate translated this quote, and, and that could mean because, it could be strictly causal, but it has a, a different shades of meaning and stuff like that, that that could come with that. The other problem, just a less technical one that maybe you could see more readily, if this were the case, why would Joseph's response be to divorce Mary why wouldn't he just more, more like, I don't know what to do here? Why, why would the first thing he thinks of is, is walking away from the situation? Wouldn't that be more likely response to this if, if it were really the fear and awe um, that were really driving him to wonder what to do? Why would divorce be the thing that he's really considering? Why wouldn't, like, I don't know what to do in this situation? Yeah. So I don't know. Jane? It, it makes you wonder if he... He obviously didn't know what to do, and, and I think he was looking at the least harmful thing. But he didn't have the re revelation that Mary had when the angel Gabriel came to her, so he didn't have that yet. Right. No, so exactly. He, and and th this also, this interpretation also forces us to imagine that he's come to knowledge, have knowledge of the origin of the baby, the true origin of the baby, in some other way that, that Matthew doesn't tell us. And that might be not so great a, a, an approach to take with this, right? Because if, if Matthew had wanted us to think that Joseph knew this before, that, that would sort of be, you know, why wouldn't he have told us that, right? So I think th those are some, some weaknesses to the interpretation that I'm thinking about. And the question is, how would divorcing her quietly keep her from shame in, in the community? Well, I think maybe it's not so much entirely from shame. It's more from the prospect of having to go before a formal trial and possibly being stoned as an adulteress, maybe. You know, if he kind of walks away quietly, they'll sort of not say anything else about the thing and let it go from there, right? And, and eventually, I don't know, the statute of limitations expires and people go on about their lives <laughs> ordinarily, right? Okay, so... That's, those are some, some interesting possibilities about what's, what Joseph is really thinking in this whole um, scenario. And, and, you know, this is obviously, a, you know, a big question you, you would have in terms of un interpreting this story. Whereas if you read Luke's, we're probably going to think more, a lot more about Mary's motivations of things and what she's thinking. This is really probably one of the few stories where we have to really consider what Joseph is thinking. So... I think that's that's a good one to uh, to, to think about. Uh, I asked a question here as well. 
How else might Joseph be tied into Jesus' sayings on divorce in the Gospel of Matthew? So what are Jesus' sayings in, <laughs> in the Gospel of Matthew on divorce? There's actually two of them. And like I said, Matthew, things tend to repeat themselves usually once or sometimes appear in threes. But many sayings are given twice and exactly twice. And here I would look at Matthew 5.32. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of the Greek is pornaia, which is the same word we, is sort of the root word for the term pornography. Here it's translated unchastity in my RSV. Except on the ground of unchastity makes her an adulteress, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery with her. So what's interesting about this saying is what? There is this sort of porneia clause to, to this, right? Now, traditionally in Catholic teaching, what's the policy on divorce? Is there sort of an exception to the no divorce clause? Unfaithfulness. Yeah, but, but unfaithfulness is not by itself. So, Jane, what, what are we going to say? If the marriage is invalid. Yeah, so it's more like legal in, in, invalidity and stuff like that. And that's typically the, the way in which, one way in which canon law will kind of interpret the, the pornaia clause here. But other Christians, and indeed, I, I think even some Orthodox, I'm not entirely sure of this, will sometimes interpret this to be infidelity within the marriage. That really... A, a grounds for divorce, even though Christ has a general prohibition against divorce, or sort of one exception. That's not the interpretation of the Catholic Church, but one of the things that's interesting possibility in all this is, you know, there are sayings in Luke's Gospel, and you also have a saying in Mark about divorce, and they don't have this exceptions clause. Why is there one in this Gospel, do you think? And I'm wondering if it might be because one of the heroes of the story, namely St. Joseph, considered getting a divorce on the grounds of pornaia. And here it wouldn't be from an actually consummated marriage. This would be sort of from the betrothal period of marriage. So it's not really entirely clear how that would affect the, the way the church interprets this. But I think it's very interesting, nevertheless, that this simply might be a... Um, a peculiarity of, of the kind of a literary holding together of, of Matthew's gospel. And remember, the sayings of our Lord come out a little bit differently from one place to the next. And sometimes the evangelists will, will take, a, take minor changes and stuff like that. And this, this might be an example of that. I don't know. I, I certainly think it's, that's worth considering. I don't know if it's true or not. But um, it's an interpretation for this you don't often hear. And I think it's, it's one that's, that's, that's interesting to me. So someone asked before about age. I think that was Peggy. Um, so the question is, was Joseph really a lot older than Mary? And why do we usually think the answer is yes? What's, what's the reason for that? What do you think, uh, Macrina? I don't know whether it's in the Bible or not. But the, what I was told, and he was married before. Okay, well... We'll get to that if we have time later, the possibility that Joseph was, was married before. Um, but even if Joseph wasn't married before, we would probably surmise that he might be older anyway. And why? Bill? Uh, she was a consecrated virgin. And from what I understand is there's a, a period of time where, though, the girls leave the temple and mm -hmm. they need to be placed in the care or custody of a benefactor. Okay. Uh, that's the story I had always heard. Yeah, we'll, we'll, get to, we'll get to that in a minute. That's, that's a good story. It might be true, and it is found not in the Bible, but in the Proto-Evangelion of, of, of James, uh, which is a second century work, which, among other things, some of the things that Bill just mentioned there, also tells us that Joseph was quite a bit older and had children from another marriage. He was a widow, widower. And he was, in effect, chosen by Lot to be basically the guardian to Mary uh, in, in her consecrated virginity, right? Now, what's interesting, though, is that neither Matthew or Luke tells us anything about consecrated virginity of Mary. So is there any evidence that we have 
that that might be true, by the way. I'm just I'm not saying it's false, but but is there any evidence that we have that's sort of internal to the gospel itself that, or, or absence of evidence that that we could surmise that Joseph might be uh, quite a bit older than Mary? What what do you think, um, Jane? Did you well, have? I was there? thinking of Mary because I was thinking of hail full of grace. That that sense of um, always being filled. I don't know. I think I, I lost track, but maybe he could do a good job of protecting her. He was like well-seasoned in life and stuff. I don't know. Okay. But presumably a young man could do that too, right? So let, let me, let me put the question to you this way. How old do we, will we imagine Mary probably is in this, although we're ne- never really given her age. What would you suppose? We were always told she was around 14. I don't know what the age for women yeah, getting married. So, 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 so why that particular age would we suppose? Reminds me of a bar mitzvah when a boy is 13, you know. Yeah, so in, in this society, you're generally speaking going to start thinking about marrying off your daughters right around the time when they, you know, begin to mature, have their first period, and – at that point, it's, it's time okay, so it's about time to, to think about matching her off with a male of another family. So we can assume Mary's likely, you know, a, a, a teenager, right? Not very old, okay? Now, why do we suppose Joseph is a lot older, though? Macrina? Do you think uh, the parents, their parents arranged their marriage? Well, okay, we could probably imagine that they that they would have, right? But again, the arranged marriage would have taken place whether Joseph was old or whether he was young, right? So there's probably going to be some kind of an arrangement regardless of whether he's old or whether he's young. Okay. Let me ask you the question this way. Where else do we see Joseph outside of the infancy narratives in the, in the Gospels? As a carpenter? I mean, is, it, is this his trade? Well, you see him mentioned as a carpenter, but but retrospectively, maybe, right? The son of a carpenter, Jesus called the son of a carpenter, right? Uh, does Joseph actually ever appear in any of the later scenes, like during Jesus' ministry? Now, Mary does appear in several places in Jesus' ministry. The wedding feast of Canaan would be one place. She's there at Calvary, okay, to name another place. So, so uh, those are at least two examples probably many more. Mark seems to imply that, that she's around when he's doing, uh, doing some of his, his miracles in the early period of his ministry, right? Where does Joseph come up? In the temple. Okay, and how old is Jesus in the story of the temple? Well, 12, 13, something like yeah, that. Yeah, at, at most 12 and 13, right? Okay, where's Joseph after that? Gone. <laughs> Gone, right? So, this is, I think, really the basis for it, right? That, that if Joseph were, were still alive uh, at the time of Jesus' ministry, that presumably we would have heard something about him at that, at that period of time. And so, you know, we just tend to, to suppose, well, he probably was older and, he, and he's died, right? Now, in fact, maybe there actually is living memory on the part of the evangelist that Joseph really was older, and that's why they, in effect, write him out of the story, right? He doesn't come back in the story anymore because they don't have anything to work with. And so that's, that's a possibility, right? And I think that's, that's probably a reasonably good surmise, right? Now, obviously, he could have been a young man and just died really young, right? I mean, there's lots of different possibilities we can kind of spin in our head about this. But once we sort of add in that and the possibility, and then the other thing which I think we wanted to bring up was if this is sort of the extra-biblical tradition uh, there's really two really interesting extra-biblical sources, one of which uh, Bill has sort of alluded to, uh, and that is the Proto-Evangelion of James. And then another one is called a much later work, which is almost certainly dependent on the Proto-Evangelion of James, which is called The Life of Joseph the Carpenter. Both these are available online if you like to read them. They're not very long. They're translated. They're very easy to understand. But the basic premise of the the Proto-Evangelion of James is that Mary herself sort of had this calling from from the very beginning when her parents, Anne and Joachim, in in a way, and much in the same way that Samson's mother, uh, Manoah in the Old Testament, and Samuel's uh, mother, Hannah in the Old Testament, dedicated their sons to the Lord in such a, a sort of an analogous way, Anne and Joachim 
have dedicated Mary to the Lord to be forever a virgin. And given the fact that in this day and age, they didn't have convents for, for virgins to, to join, which they would be protected in this sort of a social institution, they needed, in effect, a kind of a husbandly caretaker type of a person to, uh, to take care of, of Mary, and that's where Joseph would come in. That's one interpretation. You can believe that if you want. It's not, you know, the same weight as what the Gospels actually tell us. I will tell you probably most pious Catholics through the centuries, you know, believe that or something like it. On the other hand, not everything that the, God, that the Proto-Evangelion tells us is necessarily to be taken with the same weight as, as what, what the Bible tells us. And, and I would say in the important things that we sort of have to believe as Catholics, the Immaculate Conception, you know, being uh, perhaps the most relevant thing here, there, there's no aspect, part of the dogma of Immaculate Conception is not, you know, any historical claim about Mary's being consecrated. I mean, that certainly would go with her being immaculately conceived, but it's not a necessary part of it, right? You can certainly believe in her being immaculately conceived um, without necessarily believing the whole. So it's basically something you can believe if you like. And it certainly fills in the gap of the story and makes sense of how this unusual pairing between a woman and a man much older than her uh, might have happened in such a way that that was really God's plan all along. So it's a very it's a very wonderful story that you find in, in the Proto Evangelion. So that's a, that's an interesting uh, one. What did Joseph do for a living? That's an easy one. Carpenter. He was a carpenter. Carpenter. Okay. Well, any other possibilities? So stone mason. In yeah. So in the Bible. The word for carpenter, or what's often translated carpenter, is tectone, and a tectone really could be as much of a builder as it is a carpenter. So a carpenter, you could think of anything as being like a framing carpenter. Today, we would think of someone who builds houses, maybe. Probably we call that person a framer, though, more than a carpenter. We might call him a carpenter, but a carpenter could also be someone who makes furniture, right? And Probably in the ancient world, more or less, you know, interchangeable skills. Like if you can do one, you can do the other. But, but really, a, a tectone can be more than just a woodworker. Tectone really can be almost like what we would call today a, a contractor, right? Someone who could actually put together a house or, you know, a stable maybe or so, something along those lines. Can, can just build things, right? So Joseph might be overall just a builder a contractor. And so, any rate, it's good to think it, kind of imagine this a little bit because, you know, we have this feast of Joseph. It's Joseph the worker, right? So, really, he's kind of the patron saint of, of working people, right? Especially people who work with their hands. And so, this is kind of a good thing to remember about him. It's a really important aspect to him that, that he's really the patron of, uh, of that, of working with your hands, not necessarily working only with wood, as someone I think Bob said, could be a stonemason, right? I mean, ma many things in, in, in the ancient world were not built with wood. Wood's a little bit more scarce in the Holy Land than it is in uh, North America. And so, uh, different building materials here. So, so it, it may be other things that he would use to build rather than just wood, which carpentry would sort of tend to imply. So, uh, let's see here. Who were the brothers of Jesus? This is a good one. <laughs> Who were the brothers of Jesus? So, so in each of the Gospels, we're told of brothers of Jesus. And so, Cousins. so obviously, it, it's a dogma of the Catholic faith that Mary is an ever-virgin, right? So that would rule out the possibility that there are other children that Mary and Joseph had later on in their marriage, younger than Jesus. And besides, there's a lot of other evidence in the Gospels to suggest that the, the, these brothers and sisters are, you know, are, are going to be younger than Jesus, and therefore they're, they're not going to be his regular brothers, right? So one interpretation would be cousins, right? And who came up with the cousins theory? Does anyone know? St. Jerome. So St. Jerome the great exegete and biblical translator of antiquity uh, developed the, the theory that maybe these brothers 
are, uh, in fact, cousins, and maybe the reason that the Gospels, although the Gospels are, what, what language are the Gospels written in? Aramaic. Aramaic. No. Oh, Greek. Greek. Good. Even though the Gospels are written in Greek, that maybe they translate something that's in Aramaic, and the fact in Aramaic, there's really no word for cousin, so you would use the word ach in Aramaic to denote blood brothers or close kinship relations, and so, so maybe these brothers here that, that were mentioned are, are really cousins. So that's, that's certainly a possibility. For reasons I don't have really have time to explain, I don't think it's as likely as another possibility. I think it's a much better possibility that we have, and what is it? And by the way, I have a YouTube video on this if you want to watch it. <laughs> What's the other possibility about the brothers of Jesus? About Joseph's children from the previous marriage. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that happens to be the, uh, one of the other things that the Proto-Evangelion of James actually tells us, that, that Joseph had children by a previous marriage, and, and being widowed, you know, he still had these, these children. And so in that case, the, the brothers of Jesus would really be, what would you call them? Uh, his stepbrothers, or in this case, maybe his step-half-brothers, if there is such a thing. Step-brothers, I don't know. Yeah, so, so they'd be brethren in, very, in a kind of a broader sense, but not children of Mary. So, so that's, that's a possibility I think uh, I, I, would, I would advocate. And I think that, that fits in a lot better with, with the gospel data and also with common sense. Where's Joseph from? Final question. Nice. Go ahead. Nazareth? Okay. He's certainly from Nazareth. Why do we think he's from Nazareth? Pretty easy, right? Luke pretty much tells us he's from Nazareth, right? You know, Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 1, when we first meet Mary, Mary's in, in that gospel is sort of the main character, but nevertheless, when the angel appears to her, she's already betrothed to a man named Joseph, and Joseph is from, we're told is from Nazareth, right? Okay, so he's from Nazareth. Sure enough. Okay, is there any other possibility of, of where perhaps another city of origin or some other place that he could hail from? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. That's interesting. Why do you say that, Macrina? They lived there. That's right. They did live there. When did they live there? After Jesus was born. After Jesus was born. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, one of the things that's, that's puzzling to people about Matthew's gospel is that when the Magi appear, where are the Holy Family? Are they in a stable or a cave? Where are they when the Magi come? Bethlehem to the census. Uh, okay, the census is from Luke's Gospel. But when the Magi come, that's in Matthew's Gospel. Where are the Holy Family living? Weren't they in a house? They're in a house, that's right. And we're told explicitly that in Matthew 2, 8. I'm sorry, it's, it's in 2.11. We're told explicitly it's a house, it's an oikos. Now that's kind of interesting. You know, this is a little puzzling, in fact, to many people, but I think there's a way we could explain it, right? Because, you know, what's interesting is if they had a house there, what's the part about the stable comes in? Um, that's kind of interesting, right? If you, um, if you turn with me to Luke's Gospel and take a look at Luke chapter 2, Verse 6, actually, no, let's look at 4 through 7. I'll just read it to you here. And I want you to listen for the part that talks about the stable, right? Tell me where the stable is in this, or the cave, right? There's, there's two different theories about uh, this. Where's the stable? And Joseph went to Galilee, up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth, from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house of lineage of David. To be enrolled with Mary, his betrothed, he was with child. And while they were there, the time came her, for her to be delivered. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So where's the stable there? Anyone see anything about a stable or a cave? You would assume it because of the manger, but I don't know yeah, if they... that's right. So, so we tend to assume that there's a stable there because there's a manger. What's a manger? It's a feeding trough. It's a feeding trough. That's right. Exactly. Okay. So this is one possibility that there's a stable that they give birth in. Okay. Another possibility is that there's a cave. And in some cases, we sort of harmonize those two traditions by putting 
in a lot of Christmas crushes that sometimes you put a stable inside of a cave, right? Have you ever seen that? Where there's a cave and then they put a stable inside of it? Or, or they kind of put the wood inside and, and put this like cave-like thing around there. There are some caves in Bethlehem and stuff, and it turns out the Proto-Evangelion of James says that Jesus was born in a cave. He doesn't say he's stable, but there's a cave. But is there another way of reading this? I don't know, but I would think didn't, they didn't necessarily have to stay in the cave if they were in the house. Yeah, so, so it does bring up the question, if we do think about Matthew's Gospel, where the house came from, and it also makes us wonder, why would they have gone to Bethlehem if Joseph is from there, and that's you know where his family is from? Wouldn't there also be some kind of an ancestral home there where they would go to? I was going to say, um, if they went for the census, then the people that were registered may have left, and there may have been more room for them, you know, in, in the sense, I don't know. That's, that's possible. That's possible. But another possibility is, is that Joseph, being from Bethlehem, has some kind of family connection there, and indeed some kind of an ancestral home there. And indeed, the very last line here is, is one that's, that's interesting. What the RSV translates laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The word in there is actually never used. Uh, the word we see there in Luke's is kataluma, which means more like a general accommodation. So what it might possibly be, and I'm not saying this is true, but I'm just saying it's a possibility, is that Luke wants us to imagine that Joseph has a house in Bethlehem, being from Bethlehem. He's going back to his place of his birth, his roots, and he's bringing Mary back, and they're about to get come together because Mary's about to give birth, right? And he's bringing her back to his home, and there's no room for them and the baby in the accommodation, okay, in the room. So it just might be basically a honeymoon pad that he has within a somewhat larger house. Now you wonder, well, okay, that's fine, but what about the animals? Well, in fact, we know that in, in many of the ancient houses and stuff, in the farmhouses, the animals would actually come right up to the house to eat. And so all you'd have to imagine is that there's a trough that's right by the house, and they, they can't quite fit the baby in the room, and so they put the baby off to the side in the trough at the level of the animals. And that's where Jesus is born. He's born in a house. Now, again... The one advantage of this interpretation is that it fits in a little bit better with what Matthew tells us in that there's a house in Bethlehem. And it also solves some other puzzling things about this problem, because if you notice the details of the story is they're supposed to be there for 40 days, right, until they have to go to the temple to present Jesus. Are they really staying in a stable for 40 days? <laughs> one day maybe I could buy, but 40 days, you think they would have found some, something else out by, by that point. So this sort of makes a little bit more sense of, of this possibility, although it does change a little bit, you know, how we imagine the Christmas story. So anyway, that's what I have for you. And I see we're probably about out of time. Can I take some questions, uh, Andy? Do we have time for that? Well, first of all, thank you so much for the presentation, Dr. Brown. Okay. It's really fun. I know uh, a lot of the panelists here enjoy having the conversation sort of yeah. format here. So we appreciate you leading oh, through the information. It's been a lot of fun. And in fact, I, I learned a little bit putting this, this uh, together. So, uh, so it's, it's been, uh, it's been useful for me also. Does anyone have anything you want to ask? We're out of time at this point, but what I think would be useful for further study, do you have a couple names of books that you would recommend on this topic that we could look into? Sure. If you're interested in a more challenging book, I've actually seen the book in Barnes Noble. It's called Studies in Matthew by Dale Allison. Now, one of the reasons I recommend this is that Dale Allison is very much a modern New Testament scholar, and he's not Catholic, but he, more so than most other Catholics I know, is really deeply into the interpretive tradition. So he's constantly quoting the church fathers, many of the medievals and, and things like that, and really showing how you know, bringing those interpretations into the conversation can really illuminate our knowledge of, of these texts. That would be one I, I'd recommend. I did recommend the primary sources as well. Be, besides the Gospels themselves, definitely the Proto-Evangelion is good to look at. If you like it, The Life of St. Joseph the Carpenter, although there's not a whole lot in that one that, that's not uh, also found in the Proto-Evangelium. 
those are good as well. It's a bit uh, heavy, but the uh, stories of the nativity scene by Laurentin, Renee Laurentin, are, are, are both good. Uh, Raymond Brown obviously is a very famous one as well called The Birth of the Messiah. Um, I don't agree with all of it, but there's a lot to be learned uh, from it because he goes through a lot of different, you know, interpretive possibilities, kind of like I do here. So th- those are some definitely good things to check out if you're interested in learning more about Joseph or, for that matter, anything to do with the Gospel of Matthew. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for spending the evening with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. All right. God bless everyone. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.